I mean, our belief is that the two-party system has hijacked our election system and hijacked our political system. And that was never, ever envisioned by our forefathers. They clearly left parties out of the Constitution for good reason, because they didn't trust them. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guests today are Jackie Sallet and Tom Riley, the co-directors of the Arizona State University Center for an Independent and Sustainable Democracy. They have a new book out called The Independent Voter. Both guests have been thinking about independent voters for a long time. Jackie as a president of independentvoting.org and who worked for Ross Perot in the Reform Party and Michael Bloomberg in New York. And Tom as professor at the School of Public Affairs at ASU who served as county executive for Clark County, Nevada as an independent. We had a good conversation about the independent voters perspective in American politics. So. After a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Tom Riley and Jackie Sallett with a new book, The Independent Voter. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G R A P H I C A C Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Jackie and Tom, welcome. Thanks for taking the time today. Could you each introduce yourselves and give me a quick biographies? Jackie, why don't you start? Yeah, well, thanks for having us. I grew up in New York City in a very active political family. So politics was kind of in my house and in my blood from a very, very young age. When I was in my late teens and 20s, I started to work in journalism. I worked for a, a, a national network. This was in the 1970s, in the days when CNN was just a blip on the screen and nobody thought cable TV would ever, would ever amount to anything. How wrong could you be? But during the 70s, I became, if you will, more disillusioned with traditional politics and started to move in the direction of independent politics, independent journalism, and all of that. And that brought me ultimately into efforts to build an independent political movement, which spanned the spectrum from involvement with Ross Perot's Reform Party efforts, Dr. Lenora Fulani's historic 1988 independent presidential bid. I ran Mike Bloomberg's, uh, the independent component of Mike Bloomberg's three mayoral runs in New York and partnered with him over 12 years to try to bring nonpartisan reform to New York City. Uh, today, I'm the president of independentvoting.org. I'm the co-director with Tom Riley of the ASU Center for an Independent and Sustainable Democracy. We have a new book coming out called The Independent Voter, published by Routledge Press. I'm sort of, you know, been a long time advocate for and activist in an independent political movement. Tom, why don't you follow that? Well, thank you again for having us on. I am uh, currently the professor at the uh, School of Public Affairs at Arizona State University, and as Jackie had said, co-director for the Center for an Independent and Sustainable Democracy. Um, I've got moved kind of back and forth between academia and back into the real world. Most recently, I was chancellor of the Nevada System of Higher Education. I also had a stint running the child welfare system in Nevada. And I was the county manager, county executive for Clark County, which is the Las Vegas Valley. It was that point that I really began identifying publicly as independent, giving I had an elected board of half Republicans and half Democrats. Having that position as independent or nonpartisan was very important. And I would argue that it made me much more effective in dealing with both of the parties. Well, those are 
both really interesting backgrounds and actually very different than a lot of the people that I talk to who tend to have roots in one party or the other, particularly the Democratic Party. And so it's, I think, really useful to have other perspectives uh, like that, especially at a time of a lot of challenge to our democracy that is upending assumptions that we've had along the way. One of those assumptions is about independence generally, where a lot of political scientists and pollsters to greater or lesser degree reject the idea that there are true independents and say that everybody more or less leans into one part or the other. And you can kind of see that when you look clearly at the data. Tom, what's your take on that big question? Yeah, I, I think that is really central to our understanding of who the independent voter is. I think first we've been looking at what the recent data is on the large number of individuals who are leaving the two-party system. And Gallup attracts this, and we see anywhere between you know forty-two to fifty percent of individuals that are non-affiliated or not affiliated with the party. I mean that grows when you look at millennials; it's over fifty percent. But for a long period of time, the, the field of political science has been very dismissive of the independent. The notion is that people profess independence, but they really are leaners. And this really dates back to some of the data collection we have on polling and political participation. So when we ask people to self-identify, if you're Republican, we accept it. If you're Democrat, we accept it. If you're independent, eh, we're going to ask you a follow-up question. And the follow-up question is, how do you lean? And we give you a binary choice, Republican or Democrat. And most of the data, most of the research, then after they ask an individual, do they lean Republican or Democrat? Then they ask how they vote. And in that election, many do appear to follow their leaning. But what we have argued and others have argued and what the center is involved in from a research perspective is looking at independent voting over time, right? That, you know, one election, people may vote primarily Democrat or prim primarily Republican because of the candidate, the issue, or a host of issues. But when you do track over time, we find that independents are distinct from partisans they're unpredictable. They're volatile. <laughs> the patterns are not easily identified. Additional research has begun looking at down ballot. So let's get away from just the presidential or the celebrity elections, but let's look at down ballot. And we find more volatility when we look at down ballot. I'll just make one more comment on this. And I think that what underscores this, if we look at just some of the past presidential support for independence, in 2008, Independence went for Barack Obama by eight percentage points. In 2016, they trended four percentage points by Donald Trump. And then in 2020, they went for Joe Biden between 13 and 14 percent. And I think that underscores this volatility of who the independent is. It is much more complex than what academia and many political strategists are suggesting. Jackie, what's your take on that matter? No, just to add a couple of points to what Tom is saying on the data front, which is so important, is Americans who identify as independents, if you talk to them and if you ask them why they're independents, which most surveys don't do, they have a very, very clear explanation of why they've made that decision. And it ranges from... I want to vote for the person, not the party, to the political parties are corrupt and interested only in their own power, to our democracy is in trouble and neither party represents me, to this is the one thing that I can do to protest the corruption and the dysfunction of the two-party system. So it's interesting to me because those self-explanations, if you bother to do them, <laughs> which we do, they're very rich, they're very varied, but they're very deliberate. 
And so through the organization that I lead called Independent Voting, we run a program called Spokesperson Training. And we just did one the other night. We do them like every month or so. And we have about 25 independents from a broad cross-section of the country who come together because they want to get some training in how to talk about this decision that they've made. And these are people from all walks of life. They are not politically homogenous. They're from all different parts of the country, geographically very, very different life experiences, different generations, all of that. But they are so passionate and so concerned about the state of American democracy. And they believe that their decision to be an independent is is a way to respond to that crisis. I've been doing this work for over 30 years. And I have to say, you know, when you sit in a room, in this case, it was on Zoom with this group of folks, and they're telling you these stories about the journey that they went on to get from where they started to where they are now politically. It is profoundly moving to me. It gives you a, a, a look, an unfiltered, unmediated look at the psychology and the morality and the subjectivity of the country. And it's very, it's very big. It's very, very big. And so I think, you know, the work that we do at the center to try to challenge the methodology that's used by political science and try to peel the onion and not accept the premises of either the questions or the conclusions that are reached, that in a way goes hand in hand with this other experience. And so we're trying to help political science acquire some new tools. And we're also really trying to challenge their interpretation of what this phenomenon is about. Tom, what is different? Can you say anything globally different about independence than you could say about partisans? Are they different in their knowledge of politics? Are they different in where they fit on ideological spectrum? Are they different in how frequently they participate in elections? What can you say generally about the people who are unaligned? Good question. Well, let me start with just politically. When I was with the Morrison Institute at Arizona State University, we did do some focus groups and surveying of independents in Arizona, which constitute about a third of the population. And, you know, we did reveal that they're all over the place, right? (laughs) They're the most conservative, most liberal, and everything in between. The groups we had talked to tend to be a bit more moderate on social issues and a bit more conservative on fiscal issues, but as a whole, again, they're they're just all over the place. The difference they have from partisans is that, you know, they don't operate from a political playbook. (laughs) So when they vote, they can't go to the Democratic guide and the Republican guide on who to vote for, you know, any number of positions, which requires them to do more research, uh, to look at other cues other than party affiliation to, to make the determination. When you ask about the issue of political participation, when compared to partisans, they are less likely to participate in elections, particularly primaries. And there's a very good reason for that, because in many states, primaries exclude independents from participating. You know, we have long held the position that you should not have to join a political party to vote. In our country, when most decisions are made at the primary level for congressional seats on down, And many, if not most, of our congressional districts are gerrymandered, which go beyond just congressional seats. County commission, city council, and everything fall within that. To exclude such a large portion of individuals is problematic. So when we look at voter participation in election, it directly relates to many of the states uh, that have legal barriers for independents to participate. Those that have open primaries, those that allow independents to cast ballots or pull ballots for Republicans and Democrats, we see an increase in those that will participate. Can you add to that, Jackie? I would say that something that is a shared characteristic (laughs) that independents have, even while they vary greatly 
from an ideological point of view and from policy point of view and all of that is that they're very angry about what's happened in this country. In my experience, the anger is beginning to translate into a focus on the structural and cultural nature of the political process. You know, Tom and I have talked a lot between ourselves and with others about, for example, the whole question of the conduct of elections and election administration, which, you know, is like, on the one hand, it's like a totally boring, unsexy topic. And yet, if you take a closer look at it, what you're looking at here is the extent to which the ways that elections are run, the way that the boards of elections are constructed all the way, you know, from the Federal Election Commission on down to the lowest precinct level board is on a partisan grid. Independent-minded Americans, concerned Americans, democracy-minded Americans, whether you're an independent or not, look at that situation and they say, well, wait a second. How can that be? No wonder there is such fertile ground in this country right now for distrust in the outcome of elections. Let's leave aside the ways in which that distrust is being manipulated and exploited by different political forces, including the former president. But it's not as if there is a system out there in which the consent of the governed is reflected in the day-to-day practice of political process. Why should secretaries of state, for example, the highest elections officer in any given state be elected on a partisan system. And as Tom is fond of pointing out, they run as a partisan. And then when they get elected the next day, they're supposed to turn into a neutral arbiter of the election process and people don't buy it. So I I think that for independence, one of the ways in which I think independents are a leading force or a a cutting edge force in American political life is that they're making a statement of non-compliance with the way the system works. And having done that, they're now opening their eyes more and more to the nature of the process. They're very, very much in the front lines and in support of a whole set of structural reforms, whether it's the open primaries issue, in some cases that includes the ranked choice voting, issue. It does include nonpartisan election administration and the need to restructure the Federal Election Commission, the Commission on Presidential Debates, which is actually not even a governmental organization. It's a private organization pretending to be a governmental organization. So yeah, independents, they're very much like other Americans, but they also, I think, have a special connection to and a feel for the need to reimagine and redesign America's electoral process. You mentioned them being angry. Do you have some measure that they're angrier than partisans? I would say they are. (laughs) That's a really good question. Partisans are angry at each other. Independents are angry at the state of affairs that the American people are being subjected to. I Somewhat doubt that there's that breakdown. I think that partisans are angry about about regular things as well. I'd be surprised if that's in the data, but I don't know. But it's interesting that you, who have been steeped in the world of independent voting for so long, have that feeling, or maybe more than feeling. You mentioned the time you were working with Bloomberg on independence in New York City, which is a pretty partisan place generally, but independents, I guess, cover the non-Democrats more than anything. What what did you learn about independence in that city in those three election cycles? Well, a lot of different things. First of all, New York has a very particular... Is that yours, Tom? Maybe you can mute yourself while Jackie's talking, and at least I cannot hear it now. It was, it's just was proving too distracting for me. Jackie, continue. I'm sorry. Sure. No, no worries. Obviously you can tell that Tom's dogs are independents and they wanted to chime in. I, I fear that the may quest. be the case. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty angry too. First of all, when Mike ran in New York, New York is what they call a fusion state. 
There's other party lines. Yeah. Yes, you can run on more than one party line and aggregate the votes. And it's actually a really important option. It should be legal everywhere, but the Supreme Court handed down a terrible ruling in the late 90s, which allows states to ban fusion. But that aside, Mike ran as a Republican and as an independent. And uh, in his first election in 2001, independents were his margin of victory. It was a very, very close race. He won by 35,000 votes, and there were 60,000 votes on the Independence Party line for him. So part of what you saw there, and you saw it really throughout the 12 years that he served, was that I think you could say Independence wanted to lead the way in a change in the political culture in New York. Rudolph Giuliani had been the mayor He was popular in some circumstances, very, very unpopular in other communities. Of course, we had September 11th occur literally on primary day in the run-up to the general election. So it was a very, very chaotic moment in New York. I think the independent vote there was about asserting that what the city had to have at that point was someone who could govern as a nonpartisan. Mike had been a Democrat. He felt he could not succeed by going through a Democratic primary because it's really a Democratic machine town. He'd come, obviously, from the business sector and all of that. He registered as a Republican uh, and got the endorsement of the Independence Party on whose line he ran as well. But it really became kind of a, a situation in which independents could step forward and say, Let's not run this city as a machine town. Let's not run this city as a partisan town. Let's try and create a different kind of governance and a different kind of political culture. And Bloomberg was the candidate who could deliver that. And independents were basically the force that put him in City Hall. So that was one thing. I think part of what we saw there, again, was that independents were in the forefront of wanting to experiment with new forms of elections and new forms of governance. So one of the things that Mike had committed to during the campaign was if he were elected mayor, that he would propel putting an initiative on the ballot in New York City to shift from a partisan system to a nonpartisan election system. We had 1 million independent voters in New York City. It was over 20% of the population. It included voters from the African-American community, the Latino community, the Asian community, et cetera. Very, very diverse. So he won the election. He used his power as mayor to establish a charter revision commission. We put an initiative on the ballot in 2003. And everyone from the New York Times to all the parties to the editorial boards of all but one newspaper fought against this tooth and nail. And it was so revealing because you could just see that there was a new constituency that was rising up in New York, and not just in New York, actually all around the country, that was looking for a different kind of political culture and a different kind of system. And the old institutional players were dead set against this. We saw that happen over and over again in the field of education and the field of policing around so many different issues. So I would say that that part of what we saw was, and this is a difference between independents and partisans, is that independents are willing to challenge and go up against the pre-existing institutions. That's true At the governmental level, it's true within the left. I mean, in New York, many, many people who are independents are progressives, but they didn't buy the notion that to be a progressive meant being in the Democratic Party. They didn't accept that. They didn't want to be forced into that. And that was a hugely controversial, you know, situation throughout the course of Mike's mayoralty. Tom, could you talk about... uh your work in Clark County and what you learned about governing as an independent or uh, leading as an independent and what you learned about the independence and the electorate there. Yeah. So both when I served as a county executive and county manager in Clark County, as well as when I served as chancellor, we dealt with partisan elected boards. As I mentioned before in Clark County and Las Vegas, half my board was Republican, half was Democrat. 
even with the um, higher education, where many of the regents ran as nonpartisans, they self-identified as partisans. So the ability to have, to develop trust, right, in a polarized environment was critical. Many of the uh, elected officials cited my being an independent as something that helped them, right? Because those key to those positions is communication, right? It's working across boundaries beyond some of the political rhetoric to actually get things done uh, from a management standpoint and from an educational standpoint. So I found serving in that role helped kind of bridge, if you will, some of the political divide. Now, subsequently, in some additional research that we have done to look at where individuals get their news, who they talk to about the news, we did a study in Arizona where we looked at Republicans, Democrats, and Independents, which is about a third and a third and a third. And we asked them, based upon some of the research that Pew uh, has put out there, um, that reinforce that we kind of live in bubbles as conservatives, moderates, and liberals. We choose our news sources based upon how that reinforces our worldview. And then we talk about it with people who think and act like us. What we found was very interesting. We found, by and large, Democrats will choose sources that reinforce their values, and they basically have Democratic friends they talk to. Same thing with Republicans. When Democrats and Republicans had independence as part of their network, it moderated their news sources, which is really intriguing because most of the research we have out there suggests that people who live in polarized environments are not open to discussing issues with those with a differing views. That discussion is very important, right? So independence, they may very well serve as a moderating force. I found that in my role working with elected officials. I think some of the research is also suggesting that independence may be a conduit, if you will, of bringing individuals together and helping get things done. Given that the majority, I think, of political campaign strategists in the parties don't think about independence the way you two think about independence, what do you think they could learn from what you know and are learning about how to campaign better, how to appeal to those people who aren't seeing things through their partisan lens. Because what I hear a lot is that there aren't that many movable people right now. There's a lot of push to just campaign to your base and to ignore the partisans on the other side and some conventional wisdom that there aren't that many true independents and therefore why bother? Clearly that's not what you think. What what do you think they should be looking at and learning and doing differently? I mean, I would say that a big part of it would be if you're talking about what, you know, strategists should do and how they should advise candidates and elected officials and so on and so forth. A good place to start would be to acknowledge the fact that so many people are independents and to give some kind of respect for and appreciation for the reasons that people are making that choice. Now, that's a hard thing for partisans to do, since part of what they have to do is to sell the the bona fides of their side in the partisan divide. But just doing that is very, very meaningful. For example, you know, when Obama ran in 08, first of all, there were 30 states in 08 that allowed independents to vote in the party primaries, in the Democratic Party primaries. And Obama ran away with uh, the margin with those voters. And in fact, if those if those primaries had been closed to independents, Hillary Clinton would have been the nominee in 2008, not Barack Obama. And part of that, I think, is that Obama was not, he was not so fully attached to being a partisan at that point. And he was building a coalition that had a lot of different elements in it. And he was kind of like able to live there and to give expression to that. And literally just to say words like independence. If I'm elected, I will appoint Democrats, Republicans, and independents. He just kind of had the ability to recognize that the world did not consist entirely of 
the parties and the partisans that there was something else that was going on out there and that it had to be included and spoken to and respected as that. He lost that voice after getting elected for any number of reasons. And by the time he got to the 2012 re-election campaign, he lost independence by 10 points to Mitt Romney, which many people feel was part of what opened the door to what happened in 2016, as Tom was reporting earlier, namely that the independent vote swung to Trump in that election. Some of it is taking positions on certain issues, but honestly, a lot of it is acknowledging that there is another force out there, that there's other choices that people are making, and those are legitimate choices that reflect the distress that the country is having over the state of our democratic republic. If I could add to that and build upon what Jackie's saying, because I think that's a very good question. And if I was running partisan campaigns, I would be extremely interested in understanding better the independent vote. We tend, not only from the political parties, but even with media, is that we look at everything through this two-party lens. Rarely do we include independence. I mean, even on the polling, when you have major newscasts talk about where Republicans and Democrats are voting, well, you know, Democrats and Republicans make up about 27, 28% apiece of the electorate, where independents are, are 43%. The big mistakes that the Democrat and Party, Republican parties make is that when independents trend towards them in a certain election, they then start treating them as Republicans and Democrats instead as independents. The fact that they supported a candidate does not mean they're now a Republican or they now are a Democrat. Historically, that's what the parties have done. And I think that's becoming increasingly difficult as we move forward. Jackie and I were just talking about the youth vote. Our young people are going to vote in greater numbers this time. And we see the trending is that over 50% of millennials are, are not party affiliated now. So traditional ways of reaching out to these young people, are, it's not working because they're, they're doing it through a partisan lens. I think that we need to reshape from the media standpoint, from political strategists, by including and asking independents, right, and treating them as distinctly different than Republicans and Democrats. And I don't think that we have done that thus far. You guys are preparing to launch a couple things shortly, maybe after this comes out, but close to it. One is a center at ASU, I think, and one is a book. Could you each talk about what's going on there on both of those fronts and what will happen at the center and what the book is about in particular? I'll start and then Jackie, you can uh, elaborate uh, and articulate. <laughs> on the center we'll start with is really twofold. It's looking at a deep dive into who the independent voter is. This, this really complex voter that in our opinion, there hasn't been enough research and attention geared towards. In fact, we think we're the only university center in the nation that actually has a focus on who the independent voter is. But closely aligned to that is looking at nonpartisan governance. This is something, these two themes are what we talk about in the book, is that not only are we looking at the phenomena of the large number of people who are leaving the two-party system, but are there different governance systems, nonpartisan governance systems that we can embrace? I mean, our belief is that the two-party system has hijacked our election system and hijacked our political system. And that was never, ever envisioned by our forefathers. They clearly left parties out of the Constitution for good reason, because they didn't trust them. And they felt they had no place in the Republic. So the move towards and the exploration about looking at different governance systems. Jackie had mentioned earlier, one that just sticks out prominently is the Secretary of State. You know, we are the only democracy in the world that elects our Secretary of State. These are always nonpartisan positions. Uh, and in the United States, they should run as nonpartisans and pledge nonpartisan from the onset. But there's other ways to look at the election system that Jackie talked about in our report and looking at the administration of elections, if people are looking at the real threat for democracy, let's look at the mundane ways and the rules and regulations that are governing our election system. That should give people pause. So part of this is to look at, are there other ways? You know, Can we move the non-ballot upwards 
and not just downwards and, and consider more alternatives through our election process. Jackie, your chance to elaborate on what he started. Having the center at, at ASU is very, very exciting uh, to me. And credit to Tom, really, who is a professor there and who's had a longstanding relationship with the president of the university, Michael Crow. And, you know, when we first approached President Crow about the center and about the concept for what we wanted to do, not only was he very positive about it, he actually, he read, <laughs> he read us the, uh, the part of George Washington's farewell address where he warns the American public about the destructive impact of political parties and factions. So, you know, we thought, okay, you know, he definitely gets, <laughs> he gets where we're coming from. Having the center to me is extremely important. I'm more of a, a field person. I'm not an academic, though the university was gracious enough to designate me as a professor of practice at ASU so that I could serve as co-director of the center with Tom, which was a great honor for me. As Tom is saying, we think this is the only university-based center that is going directly at these questions at a time when the growth of this sector is just monumental. In Arizona, we've been talking about the Arizona numbers. In November, it is expected that independent voters will be the largest community of voters in the state, larger than Republican and Democrat. Those numbers just keep topping out at the national level. Gallup's latest number is 42 or 43 percent. Among millennials, it's over 50 percent. Among Iraq and Afghanistan war veterans, it's in the high 40s. In Arizona, 41 percent of Latinos are independent. So this is just a huge swell that really represents a sea change at the base of American politics. And so we're dedicated to the proposition that the center will be able to look at this, understand this in new ways, bring forth new research, new data, and new tools that will help our country understand and respond to in the most constructive way possible what this phenomena is about. With respect to the book, Tom and I, and we have a, another co-author, Dr. Omar Ali from University of North Carolina at Greensboro, who's a very prominent historian. And the three of us banded together to write this book. We got a publisher, Routledge Press, and they were very, very supportive. And, and in the course of the discussions with them, they brought up the idea that, you know, in 1960, a major academic research book was published called the American voter. And it was really a, like a benchmark project book that defined and redefined the entire landscape of how political science looked at these issues. And they said, well, hey, you know, what if we named this book, The Independent Voter, in a nod to that, which also was a way of saying, and now this is going to be a hinge moment in the science of American politics, and we're going to introduce a whole new set of paradigms and new information and, and all of that. So we were really excited about that, and it was great to have the confidence of the publisher behind us in this. We knocked the book out very quickly. They wanted to go to press fast, which was very smart on their part. So did we. But they felt, oh my gosh, there's a zeitgeist out there. <laughs> We want to get there first, and we want to define it and, and all of that. So we were very fortunate there. We're very excited about the two projects, and we're getting tremendously positive feedback from a lot of different corners of, you know, of American political life. So we're, we're happy to be doing it. Tom, who should read the book, The Independent Voter, and what will they learn? Very good question. Now, we went with an academic press, so obviously their most concern is they get it in the classrooms. And while that was one of our audiences, and I think that reflects on who the authors are. Jackie is, is, is boots on the ground. I haven't been in academia all my life either, so we, we, we draw upon a, a, a really practitioner focus too. The average voter, for example, that are just concerned about the state of democracy and are frustrated with how our two-party system has hijacked our political system. But it's also operatives. And given the growing number of independents, those that operate within the Democrat and Republican Party, it would seem like they would be very, very interested in gaining any insight they have about how to attract 
and engage and mobilize this growing population of voters. So, you know, we've written it in a way that is supported by empirical research. It's academically informed, but it is plain spoken. We had in mind our audience being those in the public who um, weren't interested in reading academic conceptual pieces, but was written in a way that engaged, that they could understand, and brought out our personal experiences in the field. I'm wondering if you can address some what may be misconceptions about the independent voter that I think are out there, or maybe they're not misconceptions, I'm not sure. One is, I think, that the the independent voter is the person who can't decide, who doesn't have enough information for a partisan, I think, right now on either side. The idea that you can't distinguish and pick between the party of Trump and the party of Biden is kind of astonishing. You have a Republican party right now that is, in the view of Democrats, dangerous to the democracy itself and full of a lot of bad actors, whereas their party is trying to make people's lives better and and operating in a fact-based world. So how can somebody who is not, you know, mired in an echo chamber of the right be on the fence at all? How do you address that? This is a very big topic. I, I would start very small, which is the difference between can't and won't. The idea that independents can't make a choice is invalid. The idea that independents won't fit themselves into a category, whether it's an ideological category or a partisan category, is very valid. That's how independents want to be. That's the statement that they're making about themselves. So to me, that the, let's say, the bias or whatever the anti-independent bias is embodied in that particular choice of words, independents can't make up their minds. Independents don't stand for anything. Actually, independents won't stand for what's going on. That's why they're independents. I mean, look, part of what we're talking about here, I think, not to get really fancy or or something, is we're talking about what it's going to take to create a new public philosophy in American political life. And I think that the contours of that The content of that has not been created yet, but I think part of what independents are saying is we need a new public philosophy. (laughs) They might not use those words. (laughs) They might not feel comfortable with those words, but I think that is part of what is going on. And so I think the constant effort to deny the reality of independents or to denounce them, you know, in the ways that they often get denounced is really just a way of refusing to participate in a recreative process that our country needs. And and if I could add to that and build upon it, I I think, you know, Jackie's absolutely right. You know, this notion that independents are undecided and can't decide an election whether to repudiate Trump or to support somebody else is a false narrative. Many independents have very strong opinions. At one time, the whole thought of, you know, having an independent, free-thinking citizen, you know, evaluating political choices before them and making intelligent, informed decisions really held the place of distinction in our country. We don't need political playbooks to tell you how you have to vote on every single issue. And if you deviate, then the parties punish you because you haven't towed the party line. And, you know, Issues transcend parties. People feel very strongly about issue in one election and may feel differently about something in another. And I think that's capturing who the independent voter is, is that they don't want the two-party system and these binary choices on every single issue. And just because one party takes one position, the other party seems to have to take the other polarized position where... You know, there's very little ability to compromise. There's very little ability to look at things independently. So, you know, I think you hit upon a very good topic is that, you know, independents aren't these undecided. We can't decide whether we vote for one group or another. They have very strong opinions. They just do not want to do it within the two-party system. 
And it doesn't have to be this way. If we look at worldwide democracies, a polarized two-party system is not how most democracies operate. Well, the reality, I guess, is that whether you're independent or not, when it comes to a general election in almost all places at almost all times in this country, your choices are party leaders of the two major parties because of the structure of the system. And so until we change that, independents have to either not vote or pick, in most cases, someone who's a Democrat or a Republican. So what, what consequence does that have for the independent voter to face that? As Jackie points out with Obama, there are many politicians, particularly those who are running in a community that is very split or that leans the other way, that work very hard to understand the independent voter or the partisan that's reachable on the other side. In cases where you're, where only one party matters, they, they, maybe they don't as much. What do you think are the consequences for independent voters making that kind of choice right now? Well, I, I would say a couple things about it. One is, as Tom was mentioning earlier, you see the swing factor with independence. So independents have decided the last three presidential elections, Obama, Trump, Biden. There were third party candidates on the ballot in those election cycles. But in general, I think the majority of independents chose to vote between the two parties because they were looking to put somebody in office who they thought could do a better job of shaking up the system. That's why Obama was popular among independents. It's why Trump was popular among independents. And then for Biden-Harris, it was kind of more like, oh, okay, we need to restabilize things. (laughs) Let's have a reset. (laughs) And they're the best option for doing that. I think in the long run, though, I would say, you know, I'm sure you're aware that there are new efforts coming into being to look at the possibility of creating new independent parties that are not ideological parties in the way the third parties have tended to be, but that are new kinds of parties and experiments in that direction. And we'll see where that goes. But yeah, I mean, independents are a little bit caught in a trap right now how they push against that and how we push against that. That's the creative activity that we all face now. Is part of what you are interested in doing together or separately, I guess, advocating reforms that will open up the system more so for independent voters? That's a good question. I mean, I think clearly it becomes a fairness issue with people who identify as independents, they should have every right to participate in our electoral system and not have to join the two-party system. We get a lot of pushback from the parties by saying is that, you know, there are primaries and we should be able to decide who our candidates are and open it up for members only. Well, fair and good, but taxpayers shouldn't have to pay for it. (laughs) If taxpayers are paying for that, you shouldn't exclude a large section of the voting population. I'm to your point, I mean, even in a binary election, it doesn't mean independents don't have strong opinions about one candidate or another, right? And, and support that. So it's not like they always reject the two candidates before them. Many are very enthusiastically supporting one candidate or another. But as Jackie says, is that there's other ways of doing governance. You know, I will state again too, our founding fathers really were fearful of us turning into this polarized two-party system for good reason, and their fears have come true. And there's other ways that democracy can work, whether it's open primaries, doing away with primaries altogether, having the top candidates, regardless of party, presented to voters, and that's being adopted in some jurisdictions and uh, local and, and states. So yeah, you know, part of what we're looking at is that are there other nonpartisan reforms? And dispelling, you know, which you have rightly brought up just about a lot of the misconceptions about who independents are. And again, it's not that they can't take strong positions and they do. But if our current two-party system is interested in attracting them, they need to view them as different and view them as unique and, and asking individuals what their issues are. And they don't necessarily have to be lock, stock, and barrel with one of the major parties. And and I think that's what frustrates a lot of individuals because issues, although the 
parties want to polarize them, which leads to an inability to address some of our most intractable, messy issues. There are other ways of looking at it, and people can be more independent-minded or have a lot more consensus around some of these hot topics than Republicans and Democrats are willing to acknowledge because it doesn't play to their political base. The points that you're bringing up, the, the, the points that Jackie elaborated on are really key kind of to understanding. And, and it's not like independents and unaffiliated voters aren't growing. It's the opposite is happening <laughs> across the United States. So I think with that will be a renewed demand to do things differently, right? And not always operate within this two-party lens that has increasingly become so polarized. Many have argued it's unworkable. There is a, a long strain of argument in political science about responsible parties and the virtues of having parties to create governing coalitions. Parties in general, just kind of a vehicle for people to run in. They don't that much restrict, you know, who runs as a, as a member of their party. It's just a kind of a test of whether a a candidate as a kind of entrepreneur can win over people. Do you think something would be lost if we abandoned parties completely? Well, and I'm not sure we have to abandon parties. I mean, most democracies have more than two. <laughs> Parliamentary systems or whatever. And, and what that does is that it forces, uh, you know, it gets us away from this 51, 50.1% beats up 49.9%. And as if somehow you can garner 50.1% of the vote, you impose your will and your belief system upon everybody, where in these other systems, it really requires you to form coalitions, right? It really forms you to work with others. It really requires you to take in input of others that you haven't gobbled together, you know, your 50.1%. So there's a lot of different ways of reimagining this, but, you know, opening up either nonpartisan or multipartisan or other ways that aren't dominated by the two-party system clearly should be on the table. Is there a question I should have asked you guys that I haven't? I don't know what you think, Jack. I, mean, I think you really have touched upon the key issues and, and we're able to draw them out. I thought it was a, a really good interview because you're definitely on top of some of those major controversies and issues about the independent voter. Jackie, anything else you want to say? I don't think so. Yeah, no, I, I agree with Tom. And you made us work. That was Jackie Sallett and Tom Riley. They're at the Center for Independent and Sustainable Democracy at ASU. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.